Okay. Right. So Nick Goff, thanks for uh, coming on here, Nick. You were one of my first interviewees. I think the second professional punter of many that we've done now. So you, you very kindly said you'd come back. I think it's after four years and give us, um, you know, give, answer some questions from the floor, if you like, from Twitter. Um, so first of all, I'm going to pull rank and say I'm going to got a question myself for you. Um, how much of how much has your punting changed since your betting people interview you did with me? How and why? Um, yeah, well, um, first of all, I think I think life's changed completely rather than just punting. When you came to visit me and film that first one, I wasn't sat up here in the roof, was I? So um, second second child came along, got kicked out of my office so he could have a bedroom. I've had to had to do this conversion up here to to make a new office, which is a, a bit smaller than the last one, but that's uh, that's the way of the world. How much has punting changed? Well. Um, I'm still pretty much doing my a lot of the time doing my own thing, um, playing anti-post football, early market football, uh, so early in the week football, um, major horse racing, major snooker, a bit of NFL, but I've cut back a little bit on some of those things um, because the biggest change in my punting is that I sort of, I've got involved with a with a group now, the group of friends who and we we bet football together. So just being a one-man band like I was five years ago isn't quite the case now. I, I do a lot of things um, in football on the day of game as, as part of a, of a group. And I felt like that was the, that was the right progression for me at the right time um, because of the way things were going, how much harder things were getting, um, the way the market was changing. Um, so people talk about the Asian market and how you can get big bets on. And at certain times you can but five years ago, when I, when I met you first time, if I wanted to bet a League Two match on a Tuesday, I could probably get three or four grand on. I've got no chance now. You might get 300 quid if you're lucky. So that whole market's completely changed. And if you want to continue to do extremely well, or the best you can in that, on that Asian handicap market, you need to be betting on game day. And to do that, you've got to be bloody good. Um, and so I needed to improve. And to do that, I needed to be involved with some good people. So that's the biggest change to my punting in the last few years, yeah. Okay, right. So I'm going to go... You're not going to mention who those people are? Is that a top-secret information? Well, um, not... God, in a minute, I think... You had a question in a minute you were going to ask me about who are the smartest people I've with. Maybe we'll come on to it then. Okay, right. So we'll go down. We'll go down through the card from people that have um, put questions up. Hunting for bucks would like to know if there's any chance you'll take that um, 1,500 uh, word letter that you've written and post it. Um, he, he says you're a proper punter. Loads of us really don't have the answers. We'd love to see what you've wrote in his dissertation. And who uh, would he say in his humble opinion are the best horse racing ground and football punters he's ever worked with? Yeah, sure. Um, okay, yeah, so this all came about today, really, by the fact that he was involved in Twitter conversations about the future of betting post-gambling review, um, minimum bet laws, restrictions, and that's a whole subject we'll come on to later on. Um, and I found myself just sat at my desk scribbling down some, uh, or writing down some notes about my thoughts and what the industry might be able to do and what the mentality of the industry is at the moment. And I wrote it all down and then I read it all back and thought, should I post this somewhere? It wasn't very good. And I, I used to really enjoy writing and thought, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not professional level, but I, I used to quite fancy myself as an okay 
um, writer as well as you know as a punter. But um, I read it back and thought this is rubbish. And I had a second go at it, and it's I, I was just angry with myself that I couldn't quite express what I wanted to in the right way. Um, and actually, my my wife is a is an editor. It's literally her job to to take things people have, have written and 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 make sense of them or make them look better. But I refuse to let anyone else have a look at it because if I can't do it myself, I, I, I just um, I just threw my toys and deleted the whole thing. Um, so no, that's gone, and I won't be doing it. But what I said I would do was come on here and, and maybe try and verbalise some of the views that I've got um, about where the industry's heading, the mistakes it might be making, and not learning things from the past and all that. And I'll, we'll, we'll come on to that. What was the second part of this question? The, the smartest people I've worked with. Yeah, in your in your humble opinion, who are the best horse racing, greyhound and football punters you've ever worked with? I mean, I don't, I don't know many greyhound punters and I wouldn't know how to, to know which one's the best anyway. Um, on horse racing, I worked within five or six UK firms and so I saw the horse racing desk on each of them and lots of horse racing punters. And I do have to say that the, the guys I worked with at Coral were easily the best, like, absolutely outstanding horse racing traders um, and people like James Knight and Andrew Lobo um, just really really good and uh, they'd be the best racing people that I've worked with by by a long stretch um, on football to be honest a lot of the people that, that, that I hold up as the best on football would, wouldn't really want their names mentioned but but I'll go ahead anyway um, the person I've learned the most off in all my time I've got to say is Rory Campbell who I do, do a lot of work with now um, he's, he's just excellent. A previous interviewee, Rory Campbell. He has, yeah. He, he, yeah, he, he did, did an interview on here, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, um, and also, uh, Triple Loss wanted to ask the same question, so we haven't ignored his question. It's the same one. Uh, Big Gaz Law would like to know, um, if, he was to stim if you were to stimulate your life from the first day you started working in the bet betting industry to now, 10,000 times, what percentage of the time would you have ended up as a pro punter? Was it always very likely? No, I think it's really low. I think loads of things had to come together to end up in this situation. So first of all, I went to university, did an economics degree, and I didn't ever, I was interested in betting, horse racing and football betting, all the way through university. Um, and, but I didn't ever really believe it was a, a viable career option um, because I didn't know anyone that had ever got involved in on course betting certainly would have been a pretty close shop in those days. It was very hard to to um, to out of nowhere become an on course bookmaker. I imagine, even though I wouldn't know that much about how you go about doing that, and I've seen old Anthony do it over in in um, Ireland. Um, and then I met a guy at university who still works for Ludbrooks now, a guy called Ian Tibbs, Welsh lad, one of my best mates, rugby trader at Ludbrooks, and he sort of said we should take this more seriously. We should look at getting involved in, in working in the industry. So when I graduated, I did. I started sending off some interviews, um, some applications for interviews. I got no reply to a lot of them. And I finally got a couple of interviews and got, I went over to Boyle Sports in about 2004 when they were still very small and had an interview um, with them and got blanked. And I was about ready to give it up and sort of go and work in the city with all the other economics graduates. Um, and then out of the blue, I did get offered one of the jobs and got into the industry. But even then, I was quite happy working within the industry, not I didn't have massive aspirations to become a professional punter. That only came about because the way the industry went and started to value less and less the role of a of someone who knew what the, or wanted to know what the right price was. And that was dying out in the industry. And so when it came to the time where Ludbrokes and Coral merged and I had to go up against another guy 
um, to see who got the job, I couldn't really win because my skill set was not what they were looking for in the new era. So once I was out of the game, uh, you know, the, the, the game effectively forced me out. And I, I had a few offers to get back in straight away, um, but I didn't want to. I just I, I didn't like the way that the industry was going. And so everything, that, all the dominoes had to drop for me to end up here, but they have. Now, what comes next post-review, um, post-source of funds and all, all these things, I have no idea. Um, so whether it's still viable in five years' time to do what I'm doing now, and that's one thing I'd be careful to uh, just be, say to people to be careful about. If you want to become a pro punter now, I'm not sure I can recommend it because I don't know what the what what this looks like in five years' time. Okay, now Matt Stafford, he would like to know how you keep your finances separate from punting and family life bills. Yeah, so at the beginning, I found this this was really important. Um, I used to have um, separate bank accounts for living and for betting and kept them very separate. Um, and to those who, who are looking to start out or have just started out, despite me saying a minute ago, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. If you've done it, I think that's really important to start with. Keep your finances separate and control your life and your betting in two separate ways. Once you've been involved in pro punting and have made a success of it for four or five years, I, th I think that's less relevant. Um, and I've kind of stopped using the two accounts now. It's all it's all mashed into one. But I trust myself with my own finances to an extent now where that's not that's not a danger. But definitely, if you're starting out or or you can be a little bit um, rash with your spending or, you know, you, you know yourself and that's something you need to do. Uh, put some money aside, whatever you need to do to make sure you stay on the on the, on the straight and narrow, then do it. And separate bank accounts at the beginning. Is a, um, is a sensible way to do that. Okay, thank you. Uh, Nelberg Cricket would like to know, so the scenario where you've had a success in a particular market over the years, but you've had a downswing over the last however many bets, how long do you put it down to variance before thinking your edge is going on that market? Um, that depends on the, the type of the size of the market, um, the price you're taking compared to the closing price and when you're betting. So if you're betting three days before football matches, uh, and you're consistently betting even money shots that go off 185 and after 200 bets you're still slightly behind that's still not enough you're still probably fine if you're betting day of game and um you're beating it by one or two ticks um that might be very different or you're playing into markets where there's very little liquidity um, and it's very difficult to know what the market made the right closing price to, to, to um, gauge yourself against, then it would be, it would be very different. Um, but so, so yeah, it all depends on, on when you're playing, when you're playing, what you're playing in um, and how, you, how you're judging yourself. Okay, so this is from uh, Connor Crowley. Is it possible these days to beat the Betfair SP and lose in the long term? And are some edges overfactored into the Betfair SP? Yeah, I think so. I think it's unlikely that you will consistently, significantly beat it and lose uh, long term. But I think it is possible. I think um, you know, football is my specialist subject more than racing. So in football, I say. This, this notion that the closing price is always right isn't quite, isn't quite right. 
Now, in general, there's there, there aren't many better. There aren't many better ways to judge yourself, you know, your price taken against the closing price. So you, you don't have to throw that out. But I think people need to be aware that the the closing prices are not gospel. And there's quite a few reasons for that. Let's take let's have, let's take a hypothetical of one. So let's say one of the big syndicates have got a way in Asia of getting on without their money touching the market. Let's just say that that can, that can happen. They, they might be able to, and they might have an agreement with an agent or something where they can bet. And in return for giving that agent that bet, the money doesn't go into the market. And they make an even money shot 180 and they get however much they need on, but the market doesn't move. So that information has not gone into the market. Let's say the, seri the next day, the very same group have got the same situation, even money shot, they make 180. And they want that bet with the agent and that, and that agent, for whatever reason, can't take it that day. So then they're, they're then left with no choice but to bet into the market. And they move the price from evens to 185 as a result of that huge bet coming from a respected syndicate or punter. Two situations where the, the, one of the best groups around maybe make something 180. In one situation, because if the money doesn't go into the market, it goes off evens. In the other one, the money does go into the market and goes off 185. Exactly the same view, completely different closing price. So to, to, to sit anywhere and say, well, whatever league, the closing price is always right, just isn't. It, it, but it's, there aren't many better ways of gauging because, it, because most of the time it will be. So if you're, it depends which game you're playing. If you're betting Monday morning into the Scottish Championship, the best way to judge yourself is against the closing price. But if you're betting 259 on a Saturday, you can't judge yourself against the closing price because you're betting at it. So how you, how you judge yourself and whether the SP is absolutely relevant to the way you should judge yourself depends on, on a few other factors. Okay, Nick, this is uh, from at T-O-L-D-N-M-C-R. I don't know how you pronounce that. On a scale of best man to would you have a beer with him, how much of a mate is Ollie Bell? <laughs> um, yeah, he's, he, yeah, we bought a horse together a while back, Ollie and I. And we, did a, we did a podcast together a few, a few years ago with him and Tom Stanley. I was flattered to be asked to go on with two sort of heavyweights of the, of the industry to even do a podcast. And that lasted a, a year or so. And we, we had good fun doing it. Um, but... I just would say, if, if you're a really good mate, you'd turn up at their wedding, wouldn't you? And you didn't show up at mine. <laughs> well, no, from good yeah, mates. Yeah, so excuse, some excuse. Well, the, the next part of his question is, um, are you still committed to tweeting Dominic Cummings, even though nobody else gets it? Um, yeah, so the, so the background to that is, and, and people that don't find your Twitter will wonder what the hell it is about. Um, the background of that is actually, um, I was with Ollie and a couple of other mates um, out once, and we were laughing about someone who always tweets mass, like really famous people with millions of followers, with obviously no hope of ever getting a reply. And they carried on doing it. Like, this not, don't they realise this looks silly? Because they're always tweeting this, these famous people. And so kind of as a parody of that, as a little spin-off, I started replying to Dominic Cummings, because he's, he's a bit of a madman, and he, uh, you know, um, he had all that stuff... Um, during lockdown um, and kind of to take the piss of it I just kept replying to him and then people kept saying you've got to carry on doing this now until he replies so every now and again I'll just send him a, a mad reply about what's his thoughts on a snooker final or, um, or what should I do about my kids who don't like football um, and, and things like that and he never replies he's probably muted me or something but I will carry on now until he asks so yes I'm totally committed to 
replying to Dominic Cummings until he replies to me, yeah. And what price you make yourself getting a reply? Oh, it's a thousand now. It just can't happen. <laughs> okay, right. C player would like to know, do you explain your profession in social, social situations such as parents at kids' school, etc., or just embellish a wild, boring cover story not to encourage further questions on punting from the public? Um, a good question. So I, I sort of slightly alter the spiel based on the person involved and, and my own mood. Um, so none of it would be a lie. So predominantly, I bet for myself. So sometimes I'll say I'm a professional gambler. Um, but also I've got a sort of close involvement with, a, with, with Rory Campbell. And Rory's back his own data company and do a little bit of consultancy um, within the sort of sports betting and data environment. Um, and so if I'm not in the mood to say I'm a professional gambler, I can just say, I, you know, I work within, within data in professional sports. Um, and part of the time I do. Um, sometimes I just can't face explaining professional punters and the questions that come with it. Um, so I might duck out of it um, in, in certain situations. But, but you know, I never lie. <laughs> uh, Brendan Thire would like to know, with the big firms now controlling the horse racing betting shows and the liquidity on Betfair decreasing every day, could we see the return of bigger on-course business in the UK and Irish racecourses? Yeah, to some extent, maybe. I think there might be a, a little bit of a revival on the racecourse, but also it's 2022 and not 1992. And I think there's a... The, the way the public are now, there's a, there's a high percentage of people who just won't travel big distances to get a bet on like they would have done in in the 80s and 90s now maybe the, these big players will send runners and you'll, they'll be able to get on, on on course that way but that still comes with logistical issues doesn't it and so um i have my doubts that, it, that you'll ever see well, you, you'll never see the sort of thriving betting ring that that you knew from your early days but could there be a bit of a revival yes the second part of that is do we actually have the on-course layers now willing to stand positions bigger than they'd able to, to, to the people would be able to build on in the exchange if if they're unable to hedge them back them more them, themselves as, to, to the same extent i know there are still some out there decent sized on course layers but a lot of them are sort of nudging and nerdling these days and giving them back to the exchange and just trying to lock in and not willing to take big positions so for there to be a a really vibrant race course market again you're actually going to need a few more i'd imagine on course layers that are willing to to go into races with big positions. Yeah, there's, I will have point in there. There are, there are more than enough to accommodate the current business at the moment, people that will take it. Oh, out. completely agree with that. But if, if it wanted to get much bigger and you wanted to have a hell of a lot of people going and, and, and playing into the ring, as a result of exchanges almost dying out, there being no, no exchange liquidity for anyone to hedge into, then the model's got to change again and you've got to go back to how it was 30 or 40 years ago. I don't know how much appetite there would be for that. As much as I'd like to see it, I think it'd be great. Yeah, okay, me too. Uh, reprobates would like to know, what have you learned to stop doing to improve your punting? And that's the first part of this question. I'll go for it in little bits. Um, now, this will be weird and will be the opposite of what a lot of people would say here, but what I have stopped to improve my punting is actually being a bit too conservative. A lot of people will be the other way around. They might have been rash in their early years, or um, looked, didn't control their didn't control their bankroll very well. I was the other way around. When I left the industry and decided I was going to make a go of it as a pro punter, so the way I left and I was sort of forced out of Labrooks Coral in the merger, and I sort of had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder at the time in that I'll show everyone that I can do this. Um, I, 
I, I, and so therefore I had a sort of a, I cannot fail at this because I didn't want to go back into the industry. I'm not trained to do anything else. If I failed at professional bunting, my life was in a pretty, it wasn't in the best state to be honest. What would I do next? I'd have to retrain or, or do something completely different. I didn't want to, this is what I wanted to do. So I had to succeed at it. And in the first couple of years, I didn't push my edges as much as I should have done because I wanted to, I, I didn't want any huge positions um, because I, I just wanted to, to make enough, more, more than I was making working. I was, quite, I was quite happy with that the first year or two. And then the last couple of years, I feel like, well, I've obviously made a success of this. I'm doing well. I need to now up this and try to move to the next level. And so I had to teach myself to, to have more on in spots where I, you know, in spots where I feel like I've got four or five percent edge, where I was betting X before. Now I need to up it and 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 go bigger. And that's that was actually quite tough, um, because I think this will sound weird to to people who just know me from Twitter and things like that. But I'm not actually a natural risk taker. I don't I don't relish taking risks and having big positions and um and having a you know. A, a load of money riding on a game. I don't actually enjoy it. I just want it over. Um, so, um, I guess to that extent, I, now, so when people say things, when you tell people what you do and they ask you, oh, are, are you addicted? I'm the opposite of addicted. I don't really like it. When, I, when it's time to have my last bet, I'm out and I'm done. Um, so, yeah, so the weirdly, that the answer to that question for me is that I, I've learned to, to be a bit more aggressive and, and I've learned that off people that do it and um yeah that was what that was one of my learnings off, off some other people is 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 um yeah calculated risk at the right time okay he also wants to know what was the most ridiculous bet you've ever had um ridiculous well um I guess the the situation that, that always comes to mind is is Oh, ridiculous, bad, whatever you want to call it. Um, one of the biggest bets I had in my life at the time in the 2014 World Cup was the Brazil-Germany semi-final, where I was absolutely convinced that Brazil were completely the wrong price. Uh, uh, slight underdogs at home. It was a home game because the, the, the World Cup was in their country. They played at home to Germany in the semi-final. Germany, I didn't think, had been great in that tournament all the way through. A couple of rounds before, they had to go to extra time to beat Algeria. They'd drawn a group game against Ghana. I just didn't think Germany were that good. But Brazil had their best player, Neymar, suspended, and their best defender, no, he was injured, sorry, and their best defender, Thiago Silva, was suspended. Two huge um, losses. And I thought the market had completely overreacted to these two players being out. And I made Brazil like a quarter goal favourite, and they were a slight underdogs. Um, and being a World Cup semi-final, you could get on what you wanted. Um, and so I did. And they were 5-0 down after half an hour. And lost the game 7-1. And it was probably in the top three or four biggest bets I'd had in my life at the time. Uh, and they got beat 7-1. And what was and all of my mates, sort of casual football fans, were pre-match were, what the hell are you back in Brazil for here? Were these two players out, they'll get beat. And I was like, I know better. And that was a that, that was a case where your your man on the street just knew better. Um, and I was completely wrong. Um, yeah, that was no good. Okay, this is the final part of Reprobate's question. Um, I'm assuming this is an in-joke. He's attending this year's Bobby Moore Fund Celebrity Sports Quiz. Any strategical advice? Uh, yeah, strategical advice. Drink all the red wine before some other bugger does. 
yeah, well, not my finest, finest moment when I uh, made a bit of a show of myself there. But we'll move exactly. on. Uh, yeah, moving swiftly on. Analytics Turf would like to know, after watching the very informative Matthew Trenhale interviews, I've come away from those thinking, hold on, I'm playing somebody else's game here. What advice would you give the little guys to scrape a long-term profit? Um, yeah, that's good. And, and Matthew's interview was so good. He speaks, he just speaks so well about the industry. I, I can't match the way that he speaks um, and, and his sort of in-depth passion for everything to do with betting. You know, I sort of compartmentalise on certain subjects I want to know all about and other things I let go of in my head. Whereas Matthew just follows everything and knows everything and has a view on everything. That's what I think. I, I'm, I'm in awe of him for doing that. So yeah, you, you will watch Matthew's interviews and think, you know, this guy, you know, some people are on a different level to me and, and you have to. So what I would say here is know which game you're playing. Um, if you feel like sort of taking on a mature market, like we talked about earlier, close to kickoff time is really hard and that market is just too good to beat, then don't do it. Specialise in, in something. Um, because being the small guy comes with its advantages. You're playing at stakes levels where you can get on in markets where big pros just can't or aren't, don't even bother looking at them. Um, so things like single game multis, cards markets, corners, um, anti-post football, anti-post racing, um, smaller sports, your snookers, your darts, um, where things like that where maybe the firms are just putting prices up for product's sake and aren't really you know, looking at them and they're just leaving them there. There'll be edges for the, even for the small guy to find. Um, and they'll last for a while because the people that bookies are really scared of aren't looking for them and playing into them. And this can be tricky because if you're sat down, the Champions League final is about to start, of course it's tempting to want to have a view on who's going to win the game and a bet on, on, on the major markets. But part of the discipline in being a good punter will be to realise where your strengths are and where they're not and to cut out bets in the I'm not strong situations and focus on find and focus on things that that the big guys aren't doing and that you can carve out a little niche in. So um yeah, that's how the smaller guy can still can still make it pay, I think. Okay, um Builder Punter would like to know, as a pro punter, he assumes that you're betting this you're betting in far, fairly large amounts of money. So how do you get on and do you use those Asian books? Are they safe to use? Um, yes, but Asian handicap markets are in, in sorted ways of, of, of betting into them. Um, as a rule, yes, um, firms that accept bets on Asian handicaps, um, lots have got UK licenses and uh, they're absolutely fine. Um, you'll be you'll be able to use those safely. Um, but yes, the, the, the majority of big bets, so all day of game money has to go um, Asian handicaps into the, into that sort of Asian market um, because it's just impossible to, to the UK UK firms and I don't even blame them for this don't want that type of type of business we'll get on to the UK firms in a bit but we but they 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 aren't wanting that type of business and so yeah that has to go into Asia and um, it has to be day, game day now uh, to get any sort of size because of the way the market's changed. Oh, Premier League, you can probably have a, a bet to win two grand with these firms on a Thursday. But that used to be 10, five years ago. So the whole early market has contracted. 
So if you want to be Asia now, to even Asia, to a size in football, you've got to be betting on game day. And that's a tough but not impossible market to beat. There's people out there that say that uh, that market's been cracked and it's impossible to beat. Only people saying that are the people that aren't doing it. It's not impossible to beat. Okay, Nick, part three. Sam's, uh, Sam Carson, PS. Uh, having never been closed or restricted, should he stop? And second part of his question, would you still bet at a race where certain, in inverted commas, dodgy trainers have a runner? No, if you've not been closed or restricted, you, should, you don't need to stop. But it might be that you're punting at a small enough level where even if you're winning a little bit, the firms, you're not on the firm's radars. Um, you know, I could use the example of my dad, who's been, he's been a, no, a mug, you won't even mind me saying, he's a mug style punter, just a fun punter for 40, 50 years. Um, who now has a, you know, for the first time he's, he's making us, because of concessions and best odds guaranteed and extra places and all that kind of thing. And, and bet boosts and all, is actually making a small profit for the first time. But he'll never get restricted or closed because his, his, his biggest bet's a tenner. Um, so if you're doing that and enjoying it, you'll never get restricted and closed, but that's great fun. Um, sorry, what was the second part about... Um, would, you, would, you bet, would you bet in a rear dodgy trainers? Yeah, I mean, well, yes. I'd, yeah, but you've, obviously you factor in everything you know. Um, and it's the same with, with, with dodgy football teams. If, you, if you're doing Serie B in Italia, you know, in Italy, you know that occasionally some of the games are, might be a draw. It might have been arranged beforehand. But you factor in the possibility that it might, that it might have happened. Um, and if you've got, you know, racing is not my specialist subject, but if you've got a trainer who might have a reputation for horses finishing out the back when they drift or, or um, you know, needing three runs to get a handicap, you know, I'm using really elementary examples because that's my extent of my racing knowledge but you factor that into what you do and you can't, you can't not bet on a race just because a trainer's got a runner in there it's, you know, it's, it's not like he's he's up to something in every race anyway is it because otherwise he wouldn't have his license anymore you, would, you wouldn't think so you just um account for little things in races and that's no different to accounting for a horse that's been off the track for a year and does that trainer have a good record with horses that have been off the track for a year or not um, or horses that have got a, you know, interesting temperament. So the Gary Moore horse, Goshen, and stuff like that. We, you know, that that horse can, you know, on a, on any given day, could do something completely different. So it's just taking the information at your disposal and using it accordingly, and factoring those into your your pricing and your um, your confidence around your price. This is a really important thing. It's all very well for punters to to price an event themselves. And bet around those prices but you've also got to factor in how confident you are that your prices are right because i could price a premier league match tomorrow and be absolutely confident every piece of information i require goes into my price and what comes out is what i'm happy with and i'll bet around that price if i do the same in in scottish league two where i can't get hold of the team news there may be some factors in the market which i don't know about if i then have the same confidence in that price than I had in the Premier League one, that's going to cause me problems because I, I just can't be as sure that my closing price is right or as right as I think it is on the first one. Okay, I assume this next one is possibly an in-joke as well. Matt Swad wants to know, who is it Matt Swad? Who is the rudest person in the gambling industry in your opinion? The rudest person in the betting industry. Um, I, 
mean, I don't really know any sort of rude people. Um, I get, I guess the, there's there's funny in this industry. You do work with some people who are um, who are absolutely hilarious. And I will name check two. I guess the two funniest humans I've ever worked with in the industry would be Adrian McCarthy at Stan James and a guy called Lance Cornwell, who I worked with in Malta. Um, both of those guys have been hysterics every, almost every minute of every day. Just just two funny blokes. Okay, next question from uh, Zilzar89. Uh, with cash betting becoming rarer by the day, will there still be betting shops in 10 years' time? Well, I hope so, um, and I'd like to think so, but the way it's going, you do have to worry about how many betting shops will be left. If you just, you've only got to look at high streets over the last two years and see how many have gone um, and how many were left with. Um, I know a lot of that is a result of the FOB T changes, but even in the last year, um, there have been more closing. And also you have to worry about the, um, the importance that they're viewed with within the major firms. And they're almost seem like a, you know, a problem they don't need anymore, a few of the big firms you feel. Um, whereas someone like Ben Keith is opening more and more star sports shops and looks to be doing, they look lovely inside every time they do one of these openings. And, um, you know, he, he's got a, still a smallish, but a decent number of shops there. Um, but I don't know whether there's going to be more of those independents split, uh, popping up and having 10 and 20 shops because the amount of data costs makes it really hard for that for that model to work and you've got to be as good at it as Ben to make it work and I just think most independents won't be as good at it as Ben and I don't think that the big firms really want the shops anymore so yeah you do have to worry about the future of betting shops yeah okay and uh bad man me wants to know do you still bet in them um nowhere near the extent to, to what I did um but yeah I still do I still um have some people out there do the, do some of my anti post betting for me, or at major racing festivals, I'll have I'll, I'll go around the, the shops and do some myself. But four and five years ago, I used to go out and do some of the shop stuff myself. Um, I'm used to sort of, like I said at the beginning, until I, I just wanted as much turnover as I could get in the early days. That was decent turnover, and a lot of that was available in shops. Whether that was um, yeah, each way multis at festival, at racing festivals, or um, football coupon prices where I thought that they would move. Now, this, this was a good thing with the football coupons because um, the firms the firms are hell-bent on stopping Arbors to the extent they've forgotten how to stop anyone else. Um, so if you bet on football coupons in the shops and you, and you want two grand on a football match, they get rung up to the, to the trader and all he checks is whether it's the right price on Betfair or not. But if you're confident on a Wednesday that that price will move by Saturday, but hasn't moved at the moment. They'd often, they, they used to lay you a bet. Now, that's changing a bit now as well. Um, but this absolute obsession in terms of um, not laying arbors created opportunities for to, to, to get on where you knew a price was wrong, but it wasn't an arb yet. Um, but those situations dying out, the, 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 the racing stuff is, is getting harder to make, to make money on in the shops. So... Um, going into betting shops myself now, I just I haven't done it for ages, and having other people out and betting shop, shop runners for me, pretty much dead now too. So that's that's another game which I've kind of given up, given up in the last couple of years. Right. Okay. Nick, we're getting to the nitty gritty now. Stuff that I know you want to talk about. Uh, Swanzalona one. He says I noticed yeah. 
Nick states yawn with a reference to the Australian model. As a punter that bets into Australia daily, as a dog punter, it's so much better than trying to get a bet into the UK. But I agree that the uh, Australian model of NBL can be improved. Does Nick know exactly how the NBL works in Australia? And if so, how would he improve it for the GB model? Minimum bet. Yeah, I know more. pretty much how it, I know pretty much how it works because um, one of my best mates is a is a rugby league punter and bases himself in Australia six months a year, and so so we do some stuff into Australia while he's out there and can do it. So we yeah, we made it our business to to understand exactly how it was working out there. Um, right. So minimum bet limits. I, I think people have got into their head now that I absolutely ha I detest the idea. And that's not necessarily true. I think that minimum bet limits would be a solution. I just don't think they're the best solution. Um, I think so. St to start with, the starting point in this country, in our industry, compared to what it was in Australia, is completely different. Um, and I, no, I think it's worked okay in Australia and it's not been, um, you know, it's not destroyed their industry. And I don't think it would here either. And I think that if the industry doesn't wake up to the direction of travel um, and, and the change in sentiment amongst the public, at some point, it may have minimum bet limits forced upon it. And I hear people say, no, that, that won't happen. It can't happen. It's not, might not be legal. But I heard all this about the responsible gambling debate seven, eight, ten years ago. And I heard it because I was in there and I was one of the people saying, oh, this will never happen. You'll never have to ask shot punters for source of funds. You'll never you'll never have to have an affordability checks at a couple of hundred quid. Well, it is happening. It's happening now. And we and we put our heads in the clouds about it back then. And that's happening now with this debate. And it and lots of people within the industry are saying, the right leads to the fact that restrictions have always been the case. So in terms of a minimum bet limit, bookmakers have never, even when they're on street, street corners in the 60s, have never had to take a bet. There's always been the option to, to knock people back. And, and I wouldn't want that to, be, to, to, to disappear. Um, and you hear people in the industry saying, um, things like, I don't know. Um, they're just in denial at the moment about how much things have changed and saying like, it's still not that bigger, it's still not that bigger deal. But if you're, if you're caught up in something every day and it changes a minuscule amount day by day, you can't see it. I don't notice my children getting taller because I see them every day. But if someone comes along that hasn't seen them for three months, they've noticed it. And it's a similar thing happening here. People from the outside take a glance in every now and again, and they'll see what's happening. And we get more, we're getting more in the media, people writing about this now. And I just think the general public in general are, so if you go out now and tell, tell people that you pump for a living, this question will come up sometimes. Do you have your accounts closed? Do, do, do bookies not take your bets? 10 years ago, this didn't happen. No one would have come up to me and asked me that question. It wasn't on their radar and they didn't care. But public sentiment has changed in terms of fairness now. People are obsessed with, especially giant corporations in all sectors, not just betting, but acting fairly ethically. And this, there will become a time when the big companies get more and more scrutiny if they're seen as not perceived, even the perception that they're not acting fairly. And this is coming in, in the next few years. And I believe that some of the top people in the big in the big corporations 
actually see. In fact, I know they do. I know that there's some interest in looking at what they can do because they do feel like this restrictions culture has gone a bit too far. But for anything to change, it's going to need to come from those at the very top, the boardroom members of the big, big um, merged firms. I don't think it can come at the small to medium sized firms initially because it's really, and some of them have tried it and found it really hard to bring in um, minimum bet limits. Um, and, and what I think needs to happen is that, that, that one of the big corporations needs to almost say, we're going to present you a new deal, a, a new, there's going to be a new mentality um, for layers. And I don't think they even need to change that much, but they need to understand and embrace that some of the things happening look really bad and aren't good for the industry as a whole so the example of a guy getting off of one pound 41 on a grand national bet you know three or four weeks five weeks before the race whatever it is that kind of thing just has to stop and there's still too many people in the industry don't don't agree with that we think it's fine it's not affecting that many people but it is it's affecting more people and we, at the moment, I feel like there's just a bit of a defeatist attitude, a can't-do attitude within the industry. I just think like, the industry's been kicked too hard from too many angles, and it's got everyone down. You know, the, the media, the government, the gambling commission, the public, everyone is on the case of the betting industry at the moment. And it's, it's thrown up a situation where they, they almost don't want to, to be proactive because they've... They've, they've lost the they've lost the the energy to do it but I, I do believe that if you could just make some small changes introduce this new deal where you look at a certain amount of markets and let's say for the giant firms they take is only markets where they expect to take x thousand bets and that might be major football matches top two divisions um Cheltenham, no, you don't even need a minimum bet limit for me on the four o'clock at Fakenham on a Wednesday. You don't need it there. But at the major racing festivals, the major days, the major meetings, you've got to stop laying people four quid, even if they're smart. Lay anyone a bet to, and not just 500 quid, where, this, where the Australian thing is, because I think that's a cop out. At Cheltenham on Supreme Novices Day, and, and don't do this each way, and don't do it where you've got offers. I'm not asking anyone to facilitate arbors or bad each way people and give give it away that's not that's not what this is about but get into a culture where every price on major events big football matches major sporting events cheltenham royal ascot etc every price there's someone is accountable for it there's a trader who knows why that price is there and if you lay a bet to someone you think's warm on that price a fair bet you change it and you, you actively manage the market and trade it somewhere approaching an old-fashioned way. There's still people inside the big firms that are willing, able, and capable of doing this, but they've almost had it, they've, they've had it knocked into them that they're not allowed to do this anymore, or it's, it's not the right way to do it anymore. And it still can be, and it still is, um, but it requires someone at the big firms, I think, to say, we're gonna make this change. And if they do it, yeah, in the early, there might be some teething problems, they might, there might be a small leak of a, a very small, a small amount of margin in the early days. But once they learn to trade those markets properly and, and become more skilled at it, 
I think that actually there'll be no impact on them. All right, Nick, uh, Joe Crossley, 13. Um, what's the lowest level of football that you regularly bet on? Um, so I still, so the answer is Scottish League 2. Um, I still prize all the Scottish football for myself, and this is kind of a labour of love. I, I used to love Scottish football when I was younger, um, and I, I, I still I still do price it, and, but it's very hard to get to get bets on the Scottish lower leagues, you know, early in the week, basically impossible. Even on game day, the market's really small. Um, but I still follow it because I enjoy it. Um, I, I don't make very much money out of it anymore. But, um, but yeah, I still do, still do do the Scottish lower leagues and follow them. OK, Gambling Lamb wants to know, are the Americans going to ruin betting for everyone? <laughs> um, well, haven't we kind of ruined it? Um, because... I, now, he, he will know more about the, the American market than I do, that's for sure. I, I haven't followed it all that closely. But from what I can gather, the, uh, the, the mass market, the, the way they're trying to manage mass market there is quite similar to, to how the market's gone here. And they're kind of copying what worked for the mass market in the, in, in the UK, understandably, I guess, to an extent. Um, so if they're going to go down that route and make it even worse and and ruin gambling as we knew it if you like um we kind of instigated it so i guess it's probably our fault okay abbeyfield 30 what percentage return on investment would suffice now that completely depends on um on what on what you're betting into so um early early in the week if i if i'm able to get on whether that's around shops or uk online firms or exchanges or however I can manage to get on my bets Monday, Tuesday for the weekend, you'd, you know, you'd be looking at, you'd hope to make five or 6% there, but everything you do day of game, I think two to 3% is brilliant. But then you can go anti-post stuff. You could, you, you should be targeting double, di double digit ROI. The thing is that the, the majority of your turnover is where you can get on and that will be day of game. So it's just a case of how much of your turnover is in those areas. Um, but when I amalgamate everything I do, I guess four to five percent is probably uh, probably OK. okay if I took out, sorry, just to finish that, if I, if I took out all of the day of game betting, and just said, what ROI, ROI, you know, I didn't do it anymore. If I, if I lost my edge there, and I, all I wanted to do was bet early market football, um, anti-post football, um, and anti-post other sports, you know, snooker, NFL, cricket, tennis, um, I would be looking for 8 to 10% ROI. Okay. Matthew Rushton, another in-joke, I imagine. Please tell the story of how you traded large footy in Sutton Cofield, he says it's one of the best betting stories he's heard. Nobody believes yeah, it's me. a blast from the past, yeah. Um, so Matthew was working in the compliance office uh, at the firm that we were laying these bets to a punter we called Large Footy. So um, I think it gave Matthew a bit of a heart attack, to be honest. Um, I'd forgotten about this. I'm just racking. So this is a guy who walked into a shop one day and wanted a grand on a football team, and they won. And he came back the next Saturday and wanted all the winnings on a football team, and they won. The next week, he wanted all the winnings on a football team, and he won. And he spun it up to about, well, well into six figures. And by about the 15th week, he wanted 120 grand on Villa at five to four or something. And all, you know, you know, you know the trading rooms, everyone's panicking. And I 
you know, who is this guy? What can he be doing? I'm like, there's absolutely no way this guy's anyone true. He just doesn't, it, it, the, the betting patterns, what he's doing, what he's betting on, we can't be, you know, he's going to do it in. But there's going to be a point at which if he, if he wins three more bets, he's going to win a million pounds. And we, um, you know, that, that's, you know, we can't take him on much higher than that. Um, and there, there are a few meetings about it, but ultimately I had to make the call and, and stood firm and carried on laying him in the 120 at five to four one. And he comes back the next seven, the next, the next week and wants 270 grand at, um, on um, I think Man United at evens. Um, who were they away to? I can't remember. Uh, and it was the talk of the office and everyone was flustered. And I think we got a 95th minute winner our way and, and prevent, prevented the 540 grand payout because um, I have no idea what we were going to do next, if that one had copped. Um, but we never got to find out. And then he came back about two weeks later with £1,000 and said, right, I'm starting again. Um, but <laughs> we never heard from him after that. Brilliant. So that's a brilliant story. Uh, Thomas Brown 4 would like to know what are your thoughts on the World Cup being in Qatar in December and will it affect your approach to betting on it? So the, the biggest effect that the World Cup in December is going to have on me when they're going to play the first half of the season, domestic season, from August to November, is when the hell am I going to find the time to research for this tournament? Because usually what I would do, as the season starts to wind down beginning of May, I would, I, I, I've got a four-week period between beginning of May and beginning of June to do all my preparation for a World for a Euros or a World Cup. But this year, they're going to play domestic football right through until about 10 days, two weeks before the tournament starts. And the English lower leagues are going to carry on right through the tournament. So all of the normal work is going to continue. So I need to, I need to work out, and, and with the people I bet with as well, how, how we're going to approach this World Cup. And to be honest, if I was just doing it by myself without being part of a little group, I might have said, I'm just going to leave the World Cup this year because I haven't got the time to do it all. But I don't feel like that's an option as a professional, as a serious professional punter and um, playing into the Asian market. I, I don't believe there's an option to say I'm not going to bet a major tournament. So I'm going to have to do it and I'm going to have to start planning how I'm going to get all the work done quite soon, I think. But I'm a, I'm a bit worried about it, yeah. Okay, right, this is going back to horse racing. Uh, how does Nick view Epsom as a training centre? It's a potential outlet for the horse racing industry going forward. Broader than betting, but you live near there, so you must have an informed view. That's Scobie Scob C Jr. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, so, so we moved to Epsom eight or nine years ago with no, neither of us had any ties to the area at all. But at the time I was living in central London and my my wife was living in Dorking at the time. So this was kind of halfway. We just sort of compromised on, on, on somewhere to live. And the fact that there were horses here and a race course here was part of the appeal, there's no doubt. Because I think without those things, Epsom just becomes another stop on the on the commuter line into, into Waterloo. But Epsom is special because of the race course and because of the gallops here. Um, but five or six years ago, you did wonder whether this place could continue to survive as a training base with the amount of horses that were left here the, 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 the gallops didn't look in the in the best condition five or six years ago trainers were leaving 
those trainers that were still here were, were having reduced numbers of horses. Um, some of the yards were getting into states of disrepair. It was really, you know, it was really not in a good in a good way five, six, seven years ago. But I do think now it's really exciting times for this area. Um, there's a much better vibe in the area. Um, I went up to the Gallop Saturday morning to see um, my new horse who, who for this season working, and they've done a great job of um, improving the facilities. And, and one of the gallops has been redone and looks great. And there's lots of development work in, in Epsom in the racing industry at the moment. And um, so Jim Boyle is a good friend of mine and trains my horses has got finally got planning permission after so many years to knock down the whole yard and rebuild a sort of purpose-built state-of-the-art yard with 60 boxes. At the moment, you know, he's only got room for 25 horses. So for him to expand has been impossible because he's just not had the, the ability to, to bring any more horses in, even if he had the owners. So he was sort of in a situation where he's not knocking owners away, but he couldn't encourage more people to come to him because he was full. And, and hopefully by, you know, in six months time, he's going to have 60 boxes. He'll be able to bring to, uh, new horses in. There's what was the old Philip Mitchell yard across by the the Derby Starts so on the other side of the race course, which has been in disrepair for or since I moved here. That's all being renovated, and there's going to be you know over a hundred boxes from what I can gather in there for one or a couple of trainers. Who I don't know who's going to move in. I don't know if that's been decided yet. But there's going to be more. There's going to be more horses in Epsom as a result. And I do think Epsom missed a trick for a long time. We're the closest training centre to central London, where all the money is, where, where the, the bankers are and the lawyers are and, and, and everyone in the city. And those people with all the money have been going to Newmarket or Lambourne with their horses. Well, why not come here? You're an hour away. You can come and see your horses whenever you want. Um, and they weren't doing it. But hopefully that's all about to change. And there's, you know, sort, um, there was... Um, public news earlier that Andrew Black, who you know, Betfair fame, has taken his horses away from where, where he had them in the north and actually mentioned maybe wanting some in Epsom. And I've heard that um, it sounds like a couple of Epsom trainers will be getting a horse from him. And that's great. And we need more people like that um, to, to come and have a look at Epsom and see you know, what a great training, a vibrant training yard this can be. And for the first time, I really think it's going to happen. So, yes, yes. Good times here. Okay, cricket puntery. This is a bit personal. What would you say the differences are between you in real life and your self portrayal on the internet? <laughs> um, yeah, there's no doubt that um, that I use Twitter as a bit of a, um, um, a playground, as you know, somewhere to um, to break up the day. I have my my coffee break, if you like, from sitting at a desk by myself. Um, and I don't really treat treat Twitter as real life. So there's no doubt there is some difference. If you meet me in real life and what you see on Twitter, it's slightly different. That said, this guy, Cricket Puntery, he's a friend of mine who's just asked this question, who is a friend of mine in real life, and he's the biggest bloody idiot on the internet of anyone, so he can talk. Okay, Nick, this is the final part. Here you've uh, ploughed through these. Bookies don't lay bets, wants to know. Do you miss working at Coral? No, is the answer. I don't miss, I don't miss it at all. I'm, I miss a few people. Um, and five, six, seven people that I used to, there aren't many left, to be honest, there aren't that many left there that um, were, were close friends anyway. But, but I mentioned, I, I made reference to the racing guys before. Um, I've got full respect for that, for that racing team. And I think um, people on the outside, especially if you, you know, if you can't get on with them anymore, there's a temptation in betting to say, you know, if a firm restricts you, they must all be useless. And that's just not the case. There's still some really good traders left in all firms. Um, and that racing desk at, at Labrooks Coral, as it is now, I 
absolutely believe is, is still the best around. They all stayed intact after the after the merger because they were because they were all that good, the coral guys. Um, I miss seeing those guys and having a drink with them after work sometimes. Um, but do I miss the the politics involved and the um, and the, the the people outside trading chirping up with views on stuff that I, no I don't no I don't miss it at all. No. Just a, just a question for me with that. Do you think that a lot of the guys at these places are frustrated that they're not allowed to show their skills and every, it's just a blunt weapon that everybody gets everybody gets restricted? That yeah, taking away so, that. Um, I think that I think there'll be a small element of that, but mostly I think that they've just um, just resigned to the fact that that's a battle that they can't win anymore, um, and that and that trading rooms aren't the most powerful places in betting companies as they were when I joined. Um, now, but but that is something that I do think will come back a little bit, and I do think the stuff we talked about with with minimum bet limits and and a change in mentality that I do think will come to some extent will bring back the importance of um, savvy, good trading. Um, so I do think that, that, that the trading rooms at the moment are, have, have the, less power, the least power that they've ever had in betting, but I think that that will change a little bit. Okay, now Brodders would like to know, which non-UK regulated operator is the most reliable payer and what is the easiest route to transacting with them when assuming UK bank accounts are not accepted? Um, I mean, this is tricky. Um, I don't advocate um, any sort of illegal betting. So um, I wouldn't, I don't really know that much about um, those operators. Um, but there are firms that you can use to, to bet into the Asian market are legal and there are ways out there and um you know if he, if he wants to contact me i'm more than happy to sort of introduce to people who um who, who can who can get asian bets on for you without there being any you know any, any legal issues okay now we've mentioned the minimum bet uh, laws or limits so the uh, racing trends would like to know do you see it in, as an inevitability of the uk yeah, so we touched on this earlier, and I, I do think that if the industry wants to keep its fingers in its ears and do what it did with responsible gambling, these measures that are coming now from the, this Gambling Act review are a result of the industry not wanting to face up to its issues seven, eight, ten years ago. And the irony is that in the last three or four years, they really have. They've bucked up their ideas. Maybe some new people have come into senior positions. They've seen that this was inevitable and they've done more than ever to help on the responsible gambling front. But all the mistakes they made 10 years ago in not seeing what was coming is exactly what they're doing now. And they still are in denial that they might have a minimum bet rule imposed upon them, which won't be for the good. It won't be for the good of anyone. That's the problem. Um, because I, I think that if it's forced on them, the way they'll react will be unfortunate. And that might mean removing a load of things that are good for um normal punters um best odds guarantee extra places those kind of things they might sort of almost feel like they've got to retaliate to, to what you know imposed upon them by removing those things and for 90 95 percent of punters that'll be bad so the people that i think we have to say that the people that are mostly advocates for minimum bet limits are those that are so 
frustrated with the way bookmakers act now. They just want fairness at all costs without being willing to delve a bit deeper and look at what would work best for everyone. And that's how I'm coming at it and how I, this mentality change that needs to come from the top, I'm convinced is the way that this could come out best for everyone. But if they don't, if they don't embrace it in the next year or two, if they don't show any willingness to try to do something, it will be forced upon them. And then they can't argue it's not fair because they had their opportunity. Okay. So Sam Alexander would like to know, do you trade out regularly or let a bet ride? Now, I almost always let every bet ride with the exception of, of cases where it might be a position that I don't get myself into very often. Say I had an anti-post multiple that's going to pay way more than I've ever won before. Um, I might take a small amount of bad value to hedge some of that, willingly take bad value because... People say, oh, if, you don't if you never hedge, it'll all equal itself out in the long run. They're right, other than in cases which you might only get yourself into five times in your life. Because there's not enough, there's no sample size there for them to equal out over your lifetime. So if I got in a position where I was just standing to win an absolute bundle, and it go, uh, and you know, I'm on a, you know, I'm on a multiple at 200 to one, three legs of one, and the fourth leg goes evens, but I have to take um, the four to five to get out. I'll do that willingly to close some of that position because I, I, you know it, it's all. I can't. I, I can't. I can't put myself in a position to let that play itself out and shrug my shoulders if it gets beat because you're only in those positions a few times. But as a general, but in a general rule, day to day, no hedging of anything. Probably hedge couple of bet you know again if I back, if I back a snooker player for a tournament at 66 and he gets to the final and he's six to four and, and I make him that price maybe I'll smooth a little bit of it over um but five six times a year maybe okay now it's interesting that you mentioned multiples now would you do multiples as a part of your professional armory or is that something well just in case like a punter a normal punter would do if you've got an edge and you know you've got an edge and you can get multiple you've got you've got there's there's several advantages of betting multiples first of all the firms are slightly more likely to lay them because they associate multiple betting with recreational punters so you can slip under the radar to some extent that way actually not not all the time they're up they're on to they're onto that um especially as a result of those high profile racing cases um but and, and you're also creating bigger value for yourself because you're multiplying. The reason bookmakers make money on multiples is that losing punters multiply bad value by bad value, and that makes extra bad value. So it's the other way around. If you've got two things that you know should be even money and you can get six to four twice, the combined price when you've had that multiple is even more value than backing the singles would have been. Now, so for, for casual punters, you have to stand you'll win less often having the double, but when you do win, you'll win proportionately more than you would have done by betting the singles. So yeah, multiple. Yeah, yeah. If you've got an edge and you can get multiples on, get them. Okay, I'm sorry, I've, I've missed this one earlier, Nick. Andy Graham, sixty-six. The pinnacle model has prided itself on the concept that the closing line is closest to the correct price at any time in the life of a market. 
Football markets now seem full of large amounts of money moving prices in whichever way those of unlimited funds decide to do so. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I did. I, most of my answer to this, I think, in, a, in an earlier part where we talked about um, closing prices and why they're not always right. Um, and, and the pinnacle model, I've got no issues with the pinnacle model at all. I think, I think they're extremely smart. I know they're extremely smart. But even they've had to adapt the way they trade uh, and their limits, as, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, earlier in the week, because it just wasn't making commercial sense for them to have those limits higher on, on the early market where they were getting beat. So they've had, even they've had to adapt to the way they, they trade. And I don't, and no, I don't believe, I, although the closing price is probably the best way out there still for most people to judge themselves. You know, I think if you're betting only at closing price, you've got to find a, a different way of judging, uh, of, judge, of um, ranking your bets, if you like. But for most people, judging themselves against the closing price is still the, the safest way of doing it. But, you, but, but be aware that those prices are not always correct. OK, now we've got a collection of questions here about uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers. Uh, so I'll, I'll lump them all together. Um, okay. football, football punter, uh, following Wolves around the country, do you find yourself constantly checking other scores of your bets while you're at a Wolves game, or are you good at switching off? Have you ever been distracted? And then Paul Fett would like to know, have you ever been distracted by a bet elsewhere, which is a similar sort of thing? And uh, do you watch certain games on the Saturday when Wolves aren't playing that you've had a bet on, or do you just watch the scores coming through? I know it's a lot garbled together, but uh, that's um, Stuart no, Ackerstam. Um, so the I've got worse at this, actually. Um, I used to be able to go to a game, have all my bets and just switch off, turn my phone off, watch the game, look at the results at five o'clock. Um, when you get involved with groups of other people and you're actually risking other people's money for them as well as yourself, that comes with a um, responsibility, I think, to um, to trade as carefully, you know, to, to be on top of everything. Um, and so, for that reason, now I, I go to fewer matches than I used to. I don't I don't go to Saturday three o'clock games as much as I used to. I like to go Sundays, Wednesday nights, Thursday nights, whenever Monday nights, whenever the games are now, whether whether the only game or there's only one or two games of a, a day. But I actually give my season ticket to a friend for the Saturday three o'clock games now because I would rather be at my desk um, in that period leading up to three o'clock kickoffs um, and following a range of games rather than the one that I'm at. So that's something that um, has had to change. And it's, it's, it's reduced my enjoyment of life a little bit because going to football with my friends is my, you know, it's been my biggest hobby for 30 years. Um, and I'm not doing it quite as much as, as I used to. Okay. Um, is the Pentandori your favourite Wolverhampton eatery, A. Morris Racing? Uh, it would be up there, but it's not. Um, my my favourite place to go would probably be a pub called the Builder's Arms, which does a, a, a cracking mixed grill. I like the, the Queen's Cantonese Chinese restaurant in the town centre. And I like an Indian place called the Bilash. That would be if anyone's if, if anyone's ever in Wolverhampton and needs to eat, the Bilash would be my suggestion. It's fantastic Indian food. Okay, right. And this is the final question, Nick, uh, from Jim G G B. If you were twenty years younger with a betting edge, would you a go out all pro go all out pro punting, b pursue a job in the industry, c something else, and uh, would a young person talented enough to have the edge uh, be talented enough to have the edge now be likely better rewarded long term? in another industry entirely 
Well, that's probably the hardest question last. Um, would I pursue a job in the industry now if, if I thought I had a betting edge? The answer's got to be no, because I don't think they value that or want that at the moment. So if I had a big betting edge, my options would only be to go pro punting or to try to harmonise, use that edge alongside doing something alongside the industry or outside of the industry entirely. Um, would I, what would I recommend to my, to my children to do if they ended up having a betting edge? I wouldn't suggest getting into the industry and I wouldn't suggest pro punting. So I think it depends, and it depends what your edge is and how long you think it's going to last. Is it, is it through some sort of modeling thing which may or may not stand the test of time or just beating the market right now but might not in a couple of years um how's the industry going to we'll all know more once this review's over about the, the direction of travel of the whole industry and how it's going how how it's going to be possible for pro punters to carry on and what, what they're going to need to do i mean i'm not concerned from a, from a personal perspective because as i said using asian handicaps as my method up my main method that won't change. If I if I lost shops or completely lost the ability to any UK online accounts, that might take away twenty percent of my turnover. That's not going to kill me. It would be that's, that's that. It's annoying because that's the biggest mark as we spoke about earlier. That your biggest ROI comes there. So if I lost twenty percent of my turnover, I might actually lose in that and that might be thirty three percent of my ROI, um, which would be quite annoying. But we we'll all deal with the cards that we're dealt on the back of this review. What, what's annoying at the moment is we're just sitting around waiting and we have been for so long. Um, I think most punters, right-minded punters, just want to be told these are the rules, now crack on. Now, th this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. Um, try and make it pay within those rules. If you can't, you better do something else. But at okay. the moment we're in limbo, just waiting for, um, waiting for, the, for someone to decide what those rules are. And the biggest, the biggest worry is that we have to assume that the people that are going to make those rules don't really understand betting and that's that's why we should all be writing to our mps um doing as much as we can at the moment to um to, to continue lobbying uh, um on this you know four punters okay i said it was the final question i've just got one final question have you got a plan b um no, no plan. Plan B, or just to do, will be just to do plan A slightly different. If if you need to change, um, I, the, yeah, there's no. Um, if I had, if I, if it really did die, then there would need to be some sort of plan B. Um, but no, there isn't. There isn't. It will just be to. It's, it's always going to be to adapt, and that's the the, the attitude and the mentality of all pro punters. Um, you you've got to have a can do. I'll make this work somehow. Attitude. That's how everyone survived. Every, every, since the beginning of time for pro puns, anyone that's wanted to punt doors, they try to close doors in your face. You've got to find ways to reopen them. That's how, that's that's always been how it's worked and always been how it'll have to work. Brilliant. Well, as, as a closing note, that's fantastic, Nick. Well, thanks very much for your time, and uh, thanks again, Nick. No God, thank you very See much. You guys. Cheers. Cheers.